Well, good morning to all of you. It's good to see you today, and I thank you again to the music team. I mentioned first service as well. I appreciate leaving the battle shield verse in. That is one of the originals verses of that that hymn, which is one of our oldest hymns that we still sing as a church, and many believe to have been written by a chieftain uh, back in the good old days. And so if you look up online, look up all the verses of Be Thou My Vision, it's a profound statement of a man who is a ruler on earth saying, not anymore am I the highest authority in the land, but me and my people will serve God. And that's, I think, a, a significant and fitting thought as we come to our text today, and we do so on July 4th, as we celebrate as a nation, uh, a celebration that goes back to the events of July 2nd, 1776, when the Continental Congress of the United States voted to approve a declaration of independence from Great Britain. And then two days later, on July 4th, exactly 245 years ago, as we noted, delegates from the 13 colonies adopted that declaration. If you've grown up in any of the American school system, until maybe recently, hopefully you are familiar with this document. It begins with those famous words, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. And then it goes on to express what has in many ways become sort of the motto or the heart of our nation's ideals. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. And then what follows in that document is a long list of grievances against Great Britain and its king, Old George. My favorite one is this. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. I think we need more manly firmness sometime, don't you? It's a great phrase. But the document at the end returns to its sober tone and ends with these words. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence... We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Almost two and a half centuries later now, we still celebrate this document. We celebrate this day. Indeed, it was celebrated as soon as it was written. The first public readings of the Declaration of Independence as they were conducted around the colonies were met in almost all instances with great festivities and the firing of arms. But consider for a minute what a bold act this document was and how audacious it was to celebrate the Declaration of Independence because it was not merely a Declaration of Independence. It was a Declaration of War. It was an act of high treason. It meant that for all those involved, there was only two possible outcomes 
victory in a new nation or certain death. And yet they celebrated. This morning we are going to look at the final words that Jesus will speak to his disciples before, in John's account, he is arrested. Beginning next week, Jesus is going to transition. He's no longer speaking to his disciples, but he's speaking exclusively to his Father in prayer. In John's gospel, his next words to men will be those addressed to the armed mob who come to take him captive in the garden. So what we look at is the culmination of the teaching of Jesus to prepare them for the unimaginable events about to unfold. Christ has covered many topics on this night, but I want to take us back here at the beginning of our time this morning by way of reminder, and I want to specifically look at the commands Jesus has given to his disciples over the course of this evening. He has given them six unique commands, some of which he has repeated, And the final command he gives them is the one he leaves them with at the end of our text that we'll look at this morning. And as we prepare to look back and then work through our text today, I want us to keep that picture of the Declaration of Independence in mind, that idea of starting out on something audacious where the struggle is still ahead, but the end is so confidently assumed that you can celebrate beforehand. We must acknowledge, like all human documents, that the Declaration of Independence for America is ultimately a flawed document which established a flawed country populated by flawed people who seem to even today still have an insatiable craving to return to tyranny in some form or another. But in contrast to that, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we study promises perfect freedom and accomplished by a perfect Savior to take imperfect people, but to bring them to an everlasting glory. But not without a war, and not without a struggle. And so look back with me at the teaching of Jesus on this final night with his disciples before the crucifixion, and remind ourselves of the six duties that he commanded his disciples. And if you're taking notes this morning... That's the first section in your outline, the six duties of disciples. And the first is this, don't be troubled or don't be fearful. All the way back in John 14, 1, Judas had just been dismissed by the Savior. And Jesus gave no commands to his disciples until he was gone. But with Judas gone and those who are faithful left, Jesus begins with this, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Don't be troubled, says Jesus, and as is the case with all of his commands, he gives a reason, he gives support, he gives comfort to to help them understand why this command is realistic and appropriate. And in the case of John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled, he says, because in my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I am going to prepare one for you, And I will return and bring you to be with me forever. And with that as your understanding of how everything ends, you don't need to be afraid of what happens now. He reiterates this command later in John 14, verse 27, when he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And here he fills out more comfort. 
the giving of the Holy Spirit in particular. And in the context goes on to give them another reminder that Jesus is going away only to return again. God's people are not to be a fearful, timid people. They are to be untroubled, even in a world of trouble. And secondly, we are to believe. We are to believe. In John 14, verse 11, Jesus said, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Twice here, he calls his disciples to belief in a command, and he gives this as his justification. The words of Jesus are God's words. The works of Jesus are God's works. He says, you've seen my life. You've heard my teaching. You know what I speak are the true words of God. And you've seen them attested by a life of righteousness and also proven through miraculous power. Believe in me. And thirdly, abide. Abide. John, 14, excuse me, John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And again, he fills out the reasons for this. He says, if you do not abide in me, like all dead branches, you will be cut off. You will be gathered up and you will be burned. There is no life, only the expectation of judgment for those who are outside the vine. But if you abide in the vine, you will have everlasting life and you will be fruitful. So abide. And then he extends that to give us practical instruction on how to do that in John 15, 9, 15, 9, when he says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. And goes on to explain, here's how you do that. The same way that I abide in my Father's love by keeping his commandments, you will abide in my love as you obey my commandments. Don't be afraid. Believe. Abide. And then ask, ask John 15, seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And that's not a suggestion. If you're abiding in me, you could talk to God if you want to No, he's saying for those who are connected to the life of the father, you have an obligation to be daily dependent upon him, to ask him for those resources that will allow you to be fruitful This is our great privilege as Christians, not only to look back and be thankful for the gifts that we have in the cross, but as Jesus himself taught us to go to the Father's throne daily and ask for the daily bread that we need to be fruitful. The Father is invested in the righteous requests of the saints, he goes on to say, because fruitful disciples of Jesus glorify the Father. And that's why last week we looked at John 16:24, and Jesus said, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Again, he commands, ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. As we begin to understand what it means to abide in the Father's love by abiding in the Son, by keeping his commandments and asking the Father that he would give us the grace we need to be faithful to him, and we see the Father working that in us so that we are able to grow into the image of Christ, that is a joyful thing for us to experience. But then Jesus turns the corner in John 15:20 and tells us to remember. Remember. John 15:20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. 
Jesus wanted to make sure that there wasn't going to be a day when the disciples said, we have the love of the Father, hooray, we have the love of the Son, hooray, we have the Holy Spirit living within us, hooray, we have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Christ desires for our joy to be made full. We will live with him forever in these glorious dwelling places he's making for us. So what went wrong? Everybody's mad at me. I thought that once I believed in Jesus, he was going to make all my problems evaporate and disappear. I thought this was getting off of the path of trials and burdens of sickness and sorrow and heartache. I thought this was getting onto easy street with a divinely empowered coach carrying me to eternal comfort. Jesus says, remember, that was not the set of expectations I gave you. The expectation I'm leaving you with is that they will treat you just as hospitably as they treated me. They're going to understand that a lot more one day from when he spoke this than they do now. And they will understand that the opposition the world can bring is a hatred even unto death. And Jesus said, that is to be your expectation. When you encounter persecution, tribulation, and trouble, You aren't to say, it's not working. You are to say, I remember he told me this was how it was going to be. And that's why the final command that Jesus gives to his disciples on this night is from John 16, 33, and it's this. Take courage. Take courage. These things I have spoken to you, says Jesus, so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So what does Jesus wrap all of this teaching about courage with? What are the reasons and the comforts and the encouragements he gives us for why we can take courage in a world of tribulation? Well, that is the subject of our text this morning. And so I would let you take a break, cool your heels off. But now, if you are able, I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Again, as you're able, if you would stand with me to honor the reading of it. If that's a difficulty, please don't feel bad as remain seated. But as is our custom, I'd invite you to stand and turn with me to John chapter 16. And we will begin reading this morning from verse 25. John 16, beginning in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language... An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father." His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. 
I have overcome the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your grace now as we turn to your word that by your spirit you would open our eyes to understand these wonderful truths. As we celebrate the courage of so many today in our nation's history, we are reminded that every human undertaking is a flawed one and that sin has worked its way in and tainted even the most noble of human efforts. And yet the work of your son is perfect and what he has accomplished is without flaw. And you have attested to that by raising him from the dead and seating him at your right hand. And so we come, Lord, asking that you would give us a perfect courage in the perfect work of your son so that we might become a more perfect reflection of his image in this imperfect world. And so we ask that you would do this today through your truth. And we pray that in the name of your son. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned, with all the commands of Jesus in this passage, in this whole night that he's been discussing with his disciples, he's always given them a reason, a support for why he's giving them the command. And this is no exception. There's at least, I think, two key reasons, two key encouragements that Jesus gives here for why we are to take courage. And they both flow out of our faith in Christ. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the first of our two main points is this. Faith in the Son enjoys love from the Father. Love from the Father. And we see this in John 16:25 to 28, which begins with Jesus speaking again. He's just told them, Ask the Father and you will receive, and by this your joy will be made full. And then he goes on to say, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And so Jesus is saying, essentially, I know you don't get it yet. I know you're not quite on board yet. And that the way I'm speaking to you isn't clicking, but there is an hour coming where that's going to change. And even think back through our time in John's gospel. How many times has John had to put in a little editorial note to the effect of later when Jesus rose, they finally figured out what this meant. Or eventually the disciples would finally understand that this is what he was talking about. Or eventually they would realize how misguided they were here. Over and over we have these little editorial notes that no matter how simply and plainly Jesus was speaking, they didn't quite get it. This word for figurative language is not the word for parable. As you recall, Jesus often spoke in parables to the point where the disciples asked Jesus once, why do you always teach the people in parables? And many of you have probably seen books that say, you know, Jesus is the master teacher and so he used parables. And so if we want to make things clear, we need to speak in parables too. But remember what Jesus said was the reason why he used parables. So they won't know what I'm talking about. So the purpose of the parables is actually partially a judgment upon the hard-hearted nation of Israel for rejecting their Messiah. And so I'm speaking to them in such a way as even Isaiah predicted, where they will have eyes but not see, and ears but not hear. I am veiling things from the people with these parables. But Jesus is not speaking here just of parables. He's saying his entire communication, the language that he's trying to communicate with his disciples, it's just not clicking. Because even as Jesus has explained many of his parables to his disciples, they don't have the categories to put things together yet. They just can't. They're not mature enough. Perhaps you can recall as a kid asking your parents a question, and the response was simply, I'll tell you when you're older. 
or you'll understand when you're my age. There's an experience gap here. There's a maturity gap here. There's a knowledge gap here. There's a no Holy Spirit indwelling yet gap here that prevents the words of Jesus from being plain to his disciples. But Jesus says an hour is coming when that will change. In verse 26, he goes on to say, In that day you will then ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. In that day that the disciples finally plainly understand the teachings of Jesus, then that's the day they will start to finally heed the command of Jesus he just gave them in verse 24 and begin to ask things of the Father in the name of the Son. And that's a day that is going to dawn quite soon, even after the resurrection. There's the beginnings of people starting to put it together as Jesus explains on the road to Emmaus and then later to the disciples how the Old Testament pointed to him. That's going to blossom more when we finally get to the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes. And then it's really going to start clicking into place till you get to, for example, the testimony of even Stephen, that early martyr of the church, who preached that incredible sermon saying, Look, the whole thing makes sense. The whole history of the Old Testament. It wasn't about how awesome we are. It was about him. And we get it now. On the other side of the cross and resurrection and ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, things will be plain. And when that day comes, they'll say, now we know how we can begin to live out these teachings that Christ had given us and to do so in reliance upon the Father. But notice, it isn't just getting the words of Jesus or even just being able to pray to the Father that is the specific encouragement Jesus is focusing on here. The encouragement of Jesus for his disciples is the attitude and identity of the recipient of those prayers. Every prayer to the Father indeed goes through Jesus and his finished work as the Messiah. But it goes through Jesus as the Messiah, not Jesus as a mailbox. Jesus is assuring his disciples that this isn't how it's going to work. Look, we've got a relationship. We know each other. God's up there. He's willing to read what you write as long as like I approve of it first. So, so you pray your prayers. I'll kind of intercept them. And then I'll sort of shuttle them along in your behalf. It's like Jesus, or the Father gets these prayers, and he's like, does it say in Jesus' name at the end? Well, otherwise, I'm not interested. That's not what's going on here. Jesus assures his disciples that the family affection that they share on earth between Messiah and disciple is an affection that goes all the way to the heart of the Father himself. Now, the most common word for love that we see in the Gospels, indeed in all the New Testament, that word agape love, the word that means a love of self-sacrifice, a love of giving, a love of volition and will, that's not the word that Jesus uses here. He uses the word phileo, the word to mean family, affection, and fondness. This is really special. He says, I don't have to deliver the prayers on your behalf. Why? Because the Father likes you a lot. 
He is tenderly disposed towards you. That's a precious truth. For Israel, imagine their experience with Yahweh. They grew up studying Genesis and the God who speaks all things into existence. They grew up studying Moses and the God who thunders on Mount Sinai. They had studied their history and God's judgments rolling over and over again. As a nation, they had been rebellious and hard-hearted and were very familiar with the divine spanking paddle. And that made Yahweh feel distant. And for many, they imagined that that was a relationship that was supposed to be that way. And then comes the Son in the flesh, revealing the glory of God among men. And the disciples are beginning to taste of that. But it would have still been so foreign to think that that kind of relationship they have with Christ could possibly be true of the relationship they have with the Father. And Jesus is saying, it's better than you think. He likes you with a warm affection because you have loved me with a warm affection and you have believed that I come from him. That's special. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, we read, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that's one of those scare verses in the Bible, right? He sees everything. Every thought we've had in the last week has been open and bare before him. Not the like sanitized version that we tell ourselves later. But in all the heat of sinful emotion that we thought it, every word that we spoke unkindly, untruthfully, blasphemously, crassly, he heard it. Every action was noted. But the author of Hebrews goes on to say, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's so beautiful the way those two truths are brought together. God sees everything. And he wants to talk to you anyway. Jesus is not like the high priest of the Old Testament where the people would come to him with their sin and come to him with their requests. And he would say, stay here or you'll die. And then he would go within the veil on behalf of the people to make intercession for the people. No, this is a high priest, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who ripped the veil top to bottom, tore it down, and said, all who love me and who love the Father, come. And what an indictment this is to the practice of some, including many in Roman Catholicism, who still have this view of the Father as so transcendent, so distant, that he ought not to be bothered. And so instead, we must go to him through intermediaries, and so we develop doctrines of, of saints who have excess grace and merit because it's easier to try to talk to St. Philip or to St. Bartholomew than to imagine I could just go and talk to the Father. 
Or if we're really brave, we'll pray to Mary because Jesus still loves his mommy. Let's ask her to go on our behalf and appeal to the son to go to the father so that we might find help. How tragic when Jesus says the father loves you. He wants to talk to you. A couple lessons for us from this first section. The first is this. What Christ has made plain, we should study diligently. What Christ has made plain, we should study diligently. Unlike the disciples, we have no excuse. We have seen how the story unfolds. We know of the cross. We know of the resurrection. We know of the ascension. We have the Holy Spirit of truth living within us for all those who have put their faith in the work of Jesus. And we have been given 66 books of pure truth where God has spoken plainly to us. There's a mouthful of a theological word called the perspicuity of Scripture, which is the most ironic theological word because it means the Bible was written to be easily understood. God did not write this book to hide himself from us. He wrote this book to reveal himself to us. And how often in our Christian lives are we missing those aids, those mercies, those graces, those gifts that God has supplied for the success of our Christian life because we haven't taken the time to simply read and understand what he has plainly said to us. We are a Bible church, are we not? Okay, good. Yes, just checking. Was I in the wrong church? Did I miss it? There's a bunch along Sullivan. It's easy to get. We're a Bible church. But we don't want Bible to just be on the sign out front. We must be those who have diligently studied what Christ has plainly revealed. And secondly, if you love Jesus, the Father is fond of you. If you love Jesus, the Father is fond of you. That is important for us to remember. And I know in many in this culture, that's hard because the fathers that you have seen and you have experienced were not this way. And if you've grown up in a home where you were always walking on eggshells, where the father was always a volcano waiting to go off, where there was retribution for the smallest slight, anger whenever provoked, it can be hard to imagine a father who's excited to see you, especially when you've messed up. But that's not the father in heaven that we have. When we go to him and say, Father, I need to speak with you. And he says, I know, come in. I'm excited to see you. And No, you don't understand. You, you, you can't imagine what I've been thinking today what I've been looking at and doing today, the careless words that I've spoken, the sinful actions I've undertaken, almost all the commands I took the time in your word to read, I've broken. And the Father says, I know. I saw it happen. I understand your sin deeper than you do. And I'm still glad to see you. I'm still fond of you. That's the kind of father we have. And so our fear of the holiness of God is not the fear that drives us away, but it is the fear that compels us to come. 
like a child who says, everything has just gone terribly wrong. Where's daddy? That is the heart that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. Run to your father. You don't have to come to me first. You don't have to go and do the right sacrifices first. You don't have to make it right first. Go to the father. Ask him for help because he's always waiting with a fond affection for you that's rooted in the faith you have in me and the fond affection we have for one another. And so Jesus, giving them this precious truth, ends this little section by giving a short verse, verse 28, that summarizes the entire arc of his earthly ministry. And he reminds his disciples in verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. And this is the sum and substance of what we believe. But for the disciples, it still contained so much they did not understand. They were very dim in their understanding of the divine incarnation of Jesus and what it meant for God to become man in the flesh. They were dim in their understanding of the confrontation on a cosmic scale that his presence in the world represented. They did not understand that Jesus leaving the world would require death, resurrection, and victory over sin. They did not grasp that the return of Jesus to the Father was a demonstration of the satisfaction of the Father's wrath in the sacrifice of Jesus and the glorification of Jesus and the establishing of worthiness to take up the scroll at the end of time to rule over all as king forever. There's a lot packed into that verse, isn't there? But as the disciples so ably demonstrate, when in doubt, Bluster like you know what you're doing. And so we turn to the disciples' response and the second encouragement that flows from faith in Jesus in verses 29 to 33. Faith in the Son secures peace in tribulation. The disciples said, verse 29, Lo, now you are speaking plainly. And are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. You can sympathize with the disciples. It's been a night of emotional whiplash. Right? We're celebrating the feast. One of you is going to betray you. Betray me. What? How? Who? How could it possibly? Not me. Not me. Not me. Right? I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and a helper. Great, that's fantastic. You're going to suffer. Wait, what? I want to show that I, I want you to abide in my love and there's this relationship with the Father I'm inviting into, you into and I'm leaving. What's going on? Pray to the Father. You have direct access to Him now. And tribulations around the corner. Like they're just back and forth and back and forth. And I think they're just at this point, they're like, Somebody give the right answer to something so we can like stabilize this conversation. And so they feel like, okay, there's an hour coming. Apparently, like we thought we knew what Jesus was talking about. Apparently, this is what he's talking about. Oh, but I'm pretty sure what he just said made sense because he used really small words and really short phrases. I came here. I'm leaving here. I'm going back there. Okay. Yes, Jesus, you're speaking plainly. Finally. That hour that you spoke of that's coming, apparently that hour was like 10 seconds away. It's here now. We get it. Now we believe you. 
Now we know everything. It's endearing. But it's so ironically short of reality. And again, we all have stuck that foot in our mouth at some point. But Jesus, aware of all that his disciples are unable to grasp, even in all their gushing, he responds with a sober final lesson. Jesus answered them, verse 31, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. It's impossible here to guess the tone that Jesus used in his question when he asked him, do you now believe? I think I would have used dripping sarcasm, but that's one of the reasons why I need a savior. Truthfully, shouldn't they have already believed? They had seen so much. You've heard the teachings of God and they've rung in your heart as the true words of the living God. You've, you've seen Jesus work miracles, create food out of nothing, cast out demons, heal the sick. He's raised the dead. Do you now believe? Because I told you I came from there to here. I'm going from here to there. That's what pushed you over the edge? Is their belief even now so complete as they think? Because they are not without belief. They believe in Jesus to the degree that they have followed him. They have staked their lives to him. But they say, yes, we now get it. We now know everything. We now understand. Do you, do you really? Does your belief go as deep as you think it does? And just what is that belief made out of? What metal is your faith constituted by? Will your belief prove strong and courageous? Well, the answer to that final question is given in the text. No, they will not. In fact, Jesus had told them an hour is coming when you're going to finally understand what I'm talking about. He tells them here, an hour is coming and has now arrived when you will run from the Messiah you have just so boldly claimed to trust. You will abandon him and be scattered and you will leave the Savior all alone. Alone yet notice, not alone. The same comfort that Jesus had just given to the disciples, he now applies even to his own sorrowful heart. A precious moment and insight into the Savior's thoughts as he prepares to face the abandonment of his disciples. He knows his Father will not abandon him. But the presence of the Father was not the only encouragement for Christ. And it's not the only encouragement for us as well. And that brings us to our last verse this morning. Verse 33, when Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Why is Jesus saying all of this? Why is he giving them all this information? Well, it's simply so that his disciples would have peace, that you may have peace. And it's a little ambiguous in the translation here, but Jesus isn't saying here, that he's hopeful that they may someday have peace, like it's one of the optional endings in a choose-your-own-adventure faith story. 
No, Jesus is telling them here that his words should, if they are listening, cause them to have peace right now, that very day and every day. Indeed, yes, that includes the hard days, the abandoned by friends, crucified by enemies, crushed by the wrath of God days. And if Jesus has a peace that can handle that kind of a day, he has a peace that can handle any kind of a day. And what thought, what truth is it that Jesus points to to give peace on days like this? He knows how the story ends. He knows how the story ends. When Jesus tells us to take courage, notice that it is with two promises. Promise number one, you're going to suffer. This world is a place in which you will have tribulation. That's a guarantee. Promise number two, I win. I have overcome the world. The hope of the gospel is not that Jesus managed to create this little doorway that lets you magically escape the broken world in which you find yourself. Jesus didn't come to escape the world. He conquered it. He defeated it. And it wasn't a battle that he just fought against little old Pilate and his Roman soldiers or against the envious Jewish leaders or even against the hard-hearted, unbelieving masses of Jews and Gentiles who derided Christ during his earthly ministry. No, Jesus fought a battle against the entire wicked coalition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He brought it all down. And that's why we run with endurance the race that is set before us. As Hebrews 12 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We run with endurance through tribulation because like Jesus, we know how the story ends. Indeed, as Paul wrote, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things and all of those terrible suffering things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Don't forget how the story ends. So-and-so followed Christ and came down with a debilitating disease and wasted away slowly and painfully over years and died and then rose again 
to life eternal. So-and-so preached the faith with courage and truthfulness and with a gracious winsomeness and was killed by an angry mob and left on display as a warning to the town and then rose again to stand by the side of Christ. So-and-so had an unloved life rejected by all the relationships that in this world are to be most dear and had only God himself to look to for comfort and then entered into an eternity in which every single relationship was perfect. Right? That's how the story ends. And we must tell it to the end. So take courage, Christian. A couple lessons as we close. The church of Jesus Christ should be peaceful, but never pacified. The church of Jesus Christ should be peaceful, but never pacified. Ours is to be a peace that is unruffled by anything in this world. Not a people so easily smoothed over that we cause no difficulty to the world. And now understand this. This is not a call in calling us to take courage. This is not a call to activism, to rebellion, to revolution, which seems to be the only flavor of courage our world understands. No, like Paul told us, we are still called to live a quiet and tranquil life. And doing that is going to rattle this world. When the nations are in an uproar, it is those who are not in an uproar that are the problem. By our careful devotion to God, by our love for our neighbors, by our faithful discipline and loving discipleship of our children, by the love that we show to each other, by our industry and integrity in our workplaces, by our faithfulness in the small menial tasks of this world, by that over and over and over, generation after generation, we will constantly be a massive indictment of the world and incur its wrath. And so this call to courage is not a call for us to take up the sword. Our king will do that. It is a call for us to endure in faithfulness despite the opposition that that faithfulness will inevitably bring. The church must never be pacified. We must always be peaceable And that is the essence of courage. And our second lesson then is pass on a faith of courage, not a faith of compromises. Now more than ever, courage is needed in the church. And now more than ever, we come come to a problem place in the history of the church in that we've turned all of the cosmically important stories and narratives and lessons of the plain teaching of Scripture down into these little bite-sized cartoonable lessons to help kids eat their peas at supper. That's a big problem. Because Caesar's not afraid of your kids eating their peas at supper. He's afraid of them telling the truth no matter what he threatens them with. We need to teach a rich, robust, accurate, full-orbed, cosmic-level truth to our children, to our neighbors, to each other. And understand that how you eat your peas at supper 
has cosmic implications. And so church, teach a courageous faith. Model a courageous faith. Take courage is the command of Jesus. The love of the Father and the promise of victory are ours if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings us then fittingly to our time of communion as we close this morning. Communion is our declaration of independence. We declare that we are free from this world, free from bondage to sin, free from a destiny of condemnation. But it's also our declaration of dependence. Dependence on the one who died to pay the price for our freedom, a price much more valuable than the blood of patriots shed for our earthly independence, as honorable as that is. The Apostle John, as an old man, introduced his vision of the end of all things with these words in Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker, notice these three things that come together in the tribulation, and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. And then he tells them, I'm writing to you from Patmos. Why is he writing from Patmos? Because he's had a hard day. (laughs) Because his faithfulness to the Lord had so irritated the authorities, they said, you're never allowed to go home again. You have to live the rest of your life on that island. And that was the most merciful end any of the disciples came to. Judas is out of the room at this point, right? Everybody else who's in this room will die for Christ. That grouping, tribulation, kingdom, perseverance, they go together. And our lives then can burn brightly, even as we remember week after week the sacrifice of Christ. They can burn brightly like fireworks against a dark sky, even when we suffer, because we know that we shall persevere through the tribulation by the grace of God, to the very end, and that very end is the kingdom. Have you ever wondered what it will be like to stride into that fair country one day? Well, let me give you a taste. I invite you to reflect on these words as you prepare the elements and as I invite the music team to come forward. In Revelation chapter 7, John is given a vision of those who survive the great tribulation at the end of time. They have just survived the most intense period of global suffering that will ever be experienced. And this is what John saw. Revelation 7, beginning verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. You know you said something right when all the angels flop down and say, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen again. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. 
and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them. We can appreciate that this week. Nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Would you pray with me? Father, it is with great joy that we come to celebrate the work of your Son, to declare that we believe he came from you into this world. And having accomplished all that you sent him to do, he has left this world and returned to your right hand. And there he waits for his triumphant return when he will put on display the victory he has already accomplished. And we declare our allegiance to him, our love for him and our love for you, and subsequently we do so in the knowledge of your love for us. And we thank you that we can share this with one another as we partake of the body and the blood of Christ. Give us, Lord, we pray, a captivating vision of the end of the story that in the midst of a world of tribulation, we would have peace and take courage as you have called us to do. And all this we pray for your great glory and in the name of your great son. Amen. Let's take together.